Well, thanks so much for joining us this evening, and I trust the Holy Spirit, will, as Steve has prayed, will make your time worthwhile. Several years ago, and it was a long weekend, and uh, we, had, we were visiting some friends of ours in a city called Chatham, about uh, three hours away from Toronto. And it was a long weekend, on the Monday morning, my host asked me, would you be willing to just come for a bike ride? You know? And so yeah, I hopped on a spare bike that he had, and we just wended our way through this little town, and slowly he moved, pulled into the local cemetery. And we were just kind of picking our way through the gravestones, and all of a sudden, he, we stopped, and he kind of lamented. He said, isn't it sad that there are so few headstones that make any reference to faith or God at all? And then he suddenly popped a question at me unexpectedly. He said, Sundar, what would you like to see on your epitaph? So we kind of continued biking in silence for a while as I reflected on that question, and I did come up with, with, with an answer for myself. But it did pro provoke that question, and so it's a question I want to toss out to you, uh, as, as again, as a, to frame what I'm going to be sharing with you today. What would you like to see on your epitaph? And in order to help us think through that, I want to walk you through a story in the Bible, and this, this story is the second gyroscope uh, that I would like to share with you. Uh, the story of a man who wrote a very sad epitaph in just 11 words. And I've chosen his story because it's the counter perspective to what we heard this morning, or, or last evening if you were here. Uh, the, the picture of people who are living in a covenant reality with God, who makes that covenant with us that he made with David. Today's picture is a picture of a man who didn't live that way at all. Uh, lessons from a driven man could be another title for this message. It's King Saul. And the story, and what, this, this weekend we covered one chapter, we're going to cover 22 chapters today, and of course we're not going to read them all. Uh, Robin was happy to hear that. <laughs> and I'm just going to walk you through the story, and I'd much rather you actually just listen because you can read the story later on. Uh, enter the story. Stories are, stories are engaged in somewhat differently than an analytical unpacking of a text like I did this weekend. Stories are there for you to enter in. As Peterson said, you don't necessarily have more information after you listen to the story. You have more immersion. You don't necessarily have more explanation, although you will get some, you have more experience. And so where does your story intersect with the story of King Saul? That's the perspective I want you to have as you listen. Now he was a man with a good beginning. Let me trace some elements of his good beginning. First Samuel 9 verse 2, talking about his father Kish. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than anyone others. So he was a man who was physically impressive. Later after Samuel meets him and invites him to a feast and gives him a little hint of a special destiny for him, we read these words. But Saul answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? So obviously he was a humble man, aware of his small beginnings. Later, after Samuel had anointed him at the feast, we read in chapter 10, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day and the spirit of God came upon him in power. So he was a man who had genuine spiritual experiences of the Holy Spirit. And then it came time to go public with this news. And they couldn't find him. When the time came to go public, they couldn't find him. Chapter 10, verse 22. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So he was obviously a timid man in the sense that he was reluctant for the limelight. He wasn't pushing himself forward. 
And once the public knew, then for the first time there was a sour note to the whole story. A few verses later in chapter 1027, we read, but some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and bought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. If you've kind of just been legitimized as a future leader and people were insulting to you, you could have done a lot of things to them. But Saul kept quiet. He knew how to control his anger. By the way, the character quality that, that deals with controlling anger is called meekness. So he was not only a humble man, he was a meek man. But meekness also knows when it is time to be angry. For you'll find that in the next chapter, in chapter 11, when Saul heard the news that the Amalekites or, or the Ammonites were threatening to attack the town of Jabesh Gilead, we read in chapter 11, verse 6, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. This time his anger was not at his own honor being attacked, but at the, at the honor of God, God and his people. And so he went to battle for them. So he was a meek man. Then Saul has a victory over the Ammonites and there's a huge victory celebration. And then some of his friends come to him and say, Saul, remember those people who didn't like you? Now you can put them to death. <laughs> Saul says, no one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. He was a merciful man. Now let me put those six character qualities together and you tell me whether you wouldn't like that man to lead you. <laughs> he was physically impressive. He was humble. He had genuine spiritual experiences. He was reluctant for the limelight. He was a meek man who knew when to get angry. And he was a merciful man. Well, well that would have passed the test of any uh, senior pastor candidating process, right? So that's an amazing beginning. Now fast forward the story to chapter 16 and we will see the beginning of a sad downward spiral. Chapter 16 verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So there were demonic influences that were beginning to work in this man's life. Then chapter 17 is a well-known story of David and Goliath which we don't need to get into but what we want to pick up is Chapter 18, verse 8 and 9, because as you know, when David came back, people were celebrating David's victory, crediting with slaying tens of thousands of people, but Saul only with thousands. And so we read in chapter 18, verse 8 and 9, Saul was very angry. This time all the meekness had gone, and he was angry for the wrong reasons. He was angry because he wasn't getting enough honor. Why did this? Why were they angry? They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So in evil influences, anger and jealousy was the next step down. And of course, the Bible tells us that when inappropriate anger gives a foothold to the devil, so it's not surprising Then the very next verse we read, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. So now we have increasing influences of evil. Now the story gathers momentum and we find six failed attempts at murdering David. So this man now was an attempted murderer six times over. There were of course two shallow attempts at repentance in the process. And as the story nears the end, the Philistine army is gathering together and Saul in panic prays. <laughs> When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. And so Saul turns to witchcraft. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who's a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. That was uh, consulting mediums and witches was expressly forbidden in the book of Leviticus. So the downward spiral continued. Of course, when, he did, when they did find a witch, and she tried to summon up a familiar spirit. If you know the story, God takes over and instead it is Samuel, who by now is dead, appears to him. 
And Samuel pronounces judgment upon him that he was going to die that day and his sons as well. And that's exactly what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 31. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Suicide. An evil spirit, anger and jealousy, increasing influences of evil, six, attempts, six uh, attempted murders, witchcraft, finally suicide. <laughs> if you want to write an epitaph for his name, he supplies it himself in 1 Samuel 26. Surely I have acted like a fool and I have erred greatly. Now here's the question. Here's the question for us as we read that story. On the one hand, we had this amazing beginning. Physically impressive, humble, reluctant for the limelight, genuine experience of the spirit, meek, a man who knew how to control anger, and merciful. And then way over here, evil influences, anger and jealousy, increasing amount of evil, attempted murder, witchcraft, suicide. Here's the question. What takes such an amazing beginning and ends in such a disastrous manner. That's the question the story of Saul is intended to provoke in us. How come such an awesome beginning ends so awfully? You know the answer? It's the only one. He had one single fatal flaw. There were several expressions of that fatal flaw, and that's what will connect that story thousands of years old to you and me sitting here today in 2013. So let's now go back to the middle section. We kind of jumped from 11 all the way to 16. We want to come to those critical middle sections from 13 to 15. Those three chapters contain the answer to that question. Three dimensions of one fatal flaw. And the first thing you will realize is those, that amazing beginning lasted only seven days. Anyone can be impressive for seven days. I'm here exactly for seven days, right? <laughs> that just occurred to me. So, so it's very easy to be impressed. Really, it is. So you've got to ask my congregation what I've been for 32 years, right? Or my wife, even better than that. <laughs> See, Samuel had told Saul, uh, after his anointing, to go to Gilgal and wait. Don't wait until I come to do the offering. Because you see, in the Old Testament, the offices of king prophet and priest were very clearly delineated. And the king, even a king, did not have any right to take upon himself the offices of prophet or priest. Well, it took seven days. Chapter 13, verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. He wasn't supposed to do that. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Do you see the picture? The troops were scattering. He had a job to do. He had to win a military battle. And this old priest was holding up the whole works. So let me just get it over with and move on. I felt, it was this inner compulsion to get this over with so I can get on with my task. This is the sin of impatient worship. 
Get it over with so I can get, attend to the matters that really matter. Well, look, it was serious because you can see with Samuel's rebuke in verses 13 to 15, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. I mean, that's a staggering statement. That's what this impatience lost him. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. Now what do you think Saul did? I, don't, I would like to think that if I was in his place, I'd say, oh Samuel, please, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know I blew it this time. Give me another chance, have mercy upon me. There's nothing, there isn't a hint of that. Instead it says Saul counted the men who were with him. After all, that was his, that was his whole obsession, wasn't it? The troops are scattering, I'm losing my men. So his own goal was, yeah, the kingdom's gone, but have I succeeded in my agenda? Let me count my troops. That was his agenda. He didn't get it. He didn't get the seriousness of what he did. It was just a little thing. I had to get it out of the way. My troops were scattering. Don't you understand? No repentance. Just is my goal accomplished. Well, this kind of impatience leads to a very rash decision in battle because in the next chapter, the Ammonites, he's going to battle for the Ammonites and all he's concerned about is winning the battle. See, the full focus is on himself now. So much for humility. And he made a very rash decision. He said, no one is going to eat anything or drink anything until we have won the battle. This is how he says. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. His rash decision created hunger in the troops and set them up for a very serious violation of God's law because chapter 14 verse 32 says when they finally had won the victory and they saw the animals which are all part of the booty of war, they pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. The book of Leviticus had given them very clear instruction, never eat an animal's blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood, says God. Well, Saul finds out about this, and for the first time we see a ray of hope. For verse 35 of chapter 14 says, Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. A first quiet moment in a hectic life. But wait, wait, alas, it was not to be. It was superficial. <laughs> because the next verse says, Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. The man built an altar but forgot to pray. I call that utilitarian worship. If the first sin was the sin of impatient worship, let it get it over with so I can get on to the job of preserving my troops. This is utilitarian worship, a tip of the hat to God while I still maintain control myself. So Paul says, okay, when we pray, I'll pray. So Saul asked God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer him that day. God doesn't care about utilitarian worship. He doesn't respond. No problem, Saul's the take charge man. <laughs> so Saul, oh, you won't answer me? I know what to do. Saul takes over, immediate analysis. Another rash decision. Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army. Let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said a word. Of course, it never occurred to Saul that he might be the problem. You see, Jonathan had not heard his father's 
edict that no one was to eat anything. And he had eaten a little bit of honey. And so they drew lots and they discovered it was Jonathan. What did Saul say? Kill him. Remember I told you about how what drivenness does? It destroys the people that are around you. First his army and now his own son. But the soldiers knew better and they wouldn't and they rescued Jonathan. And now comes the last straw, one more assignment, the third dimension of this fatal flaw. Samuel sends Saul to the Amalekites. The Amalekites were people who used to, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, Amalekites used to regularly raid them and would often pick off the weakest ones, probably the women and the children at the back. And so God had told Moses at that time, make sure Joshua hears about it and destroy the Amalekites. So Saul was given that final job and so God told him, go and kill everything. Kill everybody there, animals, everything. They're all devoted to God. Well, Saul comes back. And Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep. <laughs> and he says this in verse 20 to 22. Well, Samuel, Saul, how come you didn't obey me? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back their king. Is that ironical? Yeah, I destroyed them, everybody. By the way, here's the king. And then he says, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. This is the sin of rationalistic worship. When God's instructions don't make sense, change them. Fat, juicy cows and sheep. Yeah, I know God told me to kill them all, but... They'd make such amazing sacrificial animals. Surely God will be pleased with that kind of worship. So yeah, okay, I know that's what he said, but let's not kill them. Let's take them back. And I think it would be great to take the king back with us too. Rationalistic worship. When God's instructions don't make sense, change them. So Samuel confronts Saul. Your kingdom is rejected, Saul, he says. Saul's response once again gives us another ray of hope. Well, maybe he's finally getting the message. So Samuel, Saul says to Samuel in chapter 15, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. After all, what more can you ask of that? Finally, this man seems to be getting it. Forgive me, I have sinned. Please, come back with me. Let me worship the Lord. But again, when we look below the surface, we find it is completely superficial because a few verses before that we read in chapter 15, verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. That's self-worship. You know, when you fiddle around with impatient worship and utilitarian worship and rationalistic worship, eventually you will worship yourself. We cannot stop worshiping. We were all made to worship. You either worship the living God the way he has asked us to, or you worship created things and usually self-worship. And as you unpack the self-worship, you begin to see what's really underneath it. In chapter 50, verse 30, Saul says this, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Now we understand why he wanted Samuel to come back with him. It sounded so good, didn't it? Samuel, please, I have sinned. Come back with me so I may worship God. That sounds great. But now those crucial words are added. Please honor me before the elders of my people that I may worship the Lord. He's not interested in worshiping God. He wants to preserve his image. So that's the first dimension of self-worship, that's image maintenance. 
Once you get involved in image maintenance, the next fault is not very far behind. For in verse 24, he explains why he disobeyed. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. That's fear of man. Image maintenance is very quickly followed by fear of man. Os Guinness in one of his books talked about how in North American society in particular, we are developing a leadership that has become codependent on its followership. And he said, I sat down at a dinner ta breakfast table once across the table from a man who was a pastor of a huge mega church. And he said to us, he said, every Sunday morning when I stand up to preach, I'm filled with fear because I know that hundreds of those people are only two bad sermons away from going to another church. That's a leadership that's codependent on followership. Image maintenance, fear of man. Thirdly, verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? That's instant gratification. Remember, when you start drawing from the surface, when the soul gets dry, you, get a, you want quick hits at that point. Image maintenance, fear of man, leads to instant gratification because there is no richness in the soul anymore because your worship is impatient and rationalistic and utilitarian, you get whatever gives you satisfaction in the moment. This is probably one of the reasons why many Christian leaders fall in the sexual dimension of their life. They probably didn't start out in that area. It probably got, went off base in worship. Image maintenance became important. Fear of human beings, losing their congregation. And then when you live off the surface of your life like that, you become completely vulnerable to whatever happens in the moment. And so instant gratification was the third dimension. It's all summed up in verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. This is the sin of distorted wisdom. And if you look at it in every case, it's been choosing visible reality over invisible reality. <laughs> Invisible reality was to worship the living God. Visible reality was, please honor me before my elders. I want to make sure my elders think right about me. Doesn't matter what God thinks about me, but I want the elders to think about me. That's visible reality over invisible reality. What about the whole issue of impatient worship? Samuel's around the corner. The old man is taking too long to come. That was visible reality. Invisible reality, he was just around the corner. They couldn't see that. And of course, when it comes to the utilitarian worship or rationalistic worship, visible reality is these are fat, juicy animals. Why kill them? Invisible reality is God says, I have my reasons. Kill them. In every case, this is distorted wisdom. Invisible reality versus visible reality. The choices are made on the basis of visible reality. Pouncing on the plunder. Invisible reality says, God said, no, no, you don't do that. Visible reality says, I need it right now. If you put all of this together, now we have the answer to the question. Remember the question way over here? Amazing beginning, physically impressive, humble man, genuine spiritual experiences, reluctant for the limelight, a meek man who knew how to control anger, and a merciful man. Way over here, anger, evil influence of the spirit, jealousy, increasing influence of evil, attempted murder, witchcraft, suicide. What got him into trouble? Three sins of worship. Impatient worship, Utilitarian worship, rationalistic worship, and self-worship sustained by image maintenance, fear of man, instant gratification, and distorted wisdom. Got the picture now? That's the story of Saul. The startling thing, the really startling thing, 
is that this horrible ending got started by something that seems so innocuous, impatience. But it's not a little cute little sermonic device that I've extracted from this story. This too is foundational in scripture. The foundational sin in the Old Testament was the sin of the golden calf. It is referred to over and over again. You read the book of Psalms, how many times they'll talk about this Israel's sin at Horeb, the sin of exchanged glory. And we all know the sin of the golden calf. What we probably don't remember or maybe have never realized is what got the whole process going. Let me read it for you. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Moses was taking too long. It was impatience. That led to the sin of the golden calf. And according to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. The spirit of idolatry entered into the nation on that day. And it took the horrors of the exile to finally flush idolatry out from Israel. All because of impatience. So that's the story of Saul. What I'd like to do is now take a few moments to address the question. What does the 2013 AD version of this look like? First of all, is the sin of impatient worship. Let me leave you with an image. Saul scattering troops. Well, that was Saul was saying. The old man isn't coming. My troops are scattering. You know, every morning we have troops that scatter. It's called my to-do list. It's all in here. These are my troops. And you all have yours. Whether you write them down or you don't write them down. And the daily temptation as soon as we wake up is, my troops are scattering. <laughs> I've got work to do. And there's the immediate temptation for worship to either be skipped or be impatient. I've got to get it over with. I've got to tick it off my to-do list. I've got to finish my Bible reading for today. Read my daily bread so I can get on with the things that have to be done. There's so much to do. So we have a choice. As soon as you get, as soon as the, your day begins, you have a choice. Will your worship be impatient or patient? So we need some convictions to sustain ourselves. Let me give you a few convictions along the way that have helped me. I don't do it perfectly, but certainly as the years have gone on, these gyroscopes have helped me a lot. This story is a scary story, which is why I preach it all the time. Because I have a tendency to impatience more than anything else. One of the things that has sustained me is the fact that God is Lord of time. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. <laughs> because time is the challenge. We talked about that last night and this morning. You need, you need a biblical perspective on time to be able to tame this monster. And the biblical perspective comes from the fact that because God is Lord of time... When we sit quietly in his presence, when we sit down for patient worship, we can dare to believe that eternity will touch time and transform the time. Now, it doesn't increase the time, as I told you. You sit down for half an hour or 45 minutes of patient worship before God, you've got 45 minutes less to do your work. There is nothing that's going to change it. Joshua got a day given to him, and Hezekiah got 15 minutes or something given to him. It's not going to do that again. Don't count on the sun standing still. 
But here's what you can count on. What you can count on is eternity touching time and transforming the quality of the time that remains and the person that's going to be working in it. And by the way, I have to say this to you. In, in these 32 years I've had the occasion to do this, I have on occasion failed God, less now than more before. But I have to tell you this, he has never failed me. And I mean never. Never have I ever honored him with patient worship in the morning that he hasn't amazingly touched the rest of the day. When I say never, I mean never, though I have failed on many times to trust. And you know, it isn't just for all the amazing religious things like sermon preparation, stuff like that. Let me give you an illustration that happened to Sham once. Uh, Friday nights, on various occasions, we have people over to our home for hospitality, and those days tend to be a much busier day for Sham, and so I try to arrange my schedule and get back home about an hour earlier than I normally would so I can clean up the dishes and stuff like that and, and help her to some extent that I can and those days tend to be busy for her. So, uh, th- so those are days when the troops are scattering a lot more for her. And one particular day, the Thursday, the day before that, we were in a small group setting where I had actually walked some of the people through these principles. So she told me later on what happened that Friday. She said, I got up in the morning and I had that same temptation. And then I remembered what we had learned last night. And so she said, I just decided to just test God, give him the honor and just sit down with patient worship for a while before getting on with the work. And she said, it was just amazing. She said, later on in the afternoon while I was ironing clothes or whatever, she said, the whole new way of making the dish that I was planning to do popped into my mind. And I got everything finished one hour earlier than before. You see, this is the miracle. This is the miracle of eternity touching time in various ways. I've had sermons come together faster. I've had appointments canceled at the last minute. He has given back that time. And even when he never gave the time, he changed the person who was in his presence. So we need some sustain. So that picture of God as Lord of time has sustained me. Other things that have sustained me are, are biblical uh, weapons, the sword of the spirit to attack the lies of the enemy. Uh, when God first began to convict me about this thing in, in the mid-70s, when I was still an elder in our church before I became a pastor, uh, my children were young at that time. I had a job that I had to get to at a certain time. I didn't have the flex hours that I have today. And so the only way I could find time to be quiet in God's presence was to get up a whole hour earlier. So I had to set the alarm clock an hour earlier. And even though I am what you might call a morning person, I have a conviction that everybody is equally an evening person at the time when the alarm goes off. (laughs) Right. And do you know how long you have to win the battle? About nine seconds. Because that's how long it takes to roll over and hit the snooze button. So you're gonna have to train your mind to think in certain ways to overcome that temptation, to redeem that time. And, and so I memorize Isaiah chapter 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because the huge temptation at that point, the lie of the devil is, oh, you poor little boy, you got so much work to do today. Just sleep a little bit more. You know? No, God's promise was they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their By the way, it takes approximately nine seconds to recite that verse. Now you're getting the picture, right? It's what you train your mind to think of in the instant that alarm goes off. And then later when I got, became a pastor and I shared with you over the weekend this uh, 
temptation, what do I do with this pathetic manuscript that I have and I'm praying my way through Isaiah 55. On those days, I really felt I got to get up another hour earlier to get along with God. So Isaiah 40 wasn't enough anymore. I need another string to my bow. And God gave me a beautiful one from chapter 50 of Isaiah, which directly related to my preaching ministry. He said, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know a word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. And I was not disobedient. That's what I needed as a preacher, an instructed tongue to know a word that sustains the weary. Five, six, seven hundred people would be coming into the church that week, hoping that I would say something that would sustain them. Where was I going to get that? Well, God said, I'm going to awaken you. I'm going to awaken your ear. Listen to me. And it isn't just sleep. I had a friend in my church who said, my problem wasn't sleep. He said, I had no trouble getting up early. He just said, I spent three hours reading the newspaper instead of the Bible. So Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 50 wouldn't be any use to him at all. He'd need to find something else. But please find something. Whatever your temptation is that makes your troops scatter, find something from the word of God that you can train your mind to immediately at that point. These are the convictions. These are the smooth stones that, like David's weapons that we need to be able to counter the lies of the enemy because the troops are scattering every day in your face. It is relentless. And so we need counters like that to make our worship patient. So that's impatient worship, 2013. What does utilitarian worship look like? Utilitarian worship, today we don't build real altars and then forget to pray. Utilitarian worship, that tip of the hat while maintaining control to God, a modern day version of that is things will go better if I pray. Remember the Coke commercial, things go better with Coke. Well, we smuggle that over into our prayer life. Things go better with prayer, so I better pray. That's utilitarian. That's, that's using God to make your day go better. You know what? There's no guarantee that quiet, patient worship is going to make your day go better. It actually might be preparation for a day that's not going to go very well. I remember one time in our church three years ago, every, the first full week of every year, we have what's called solemn assembly in our church. We shut down all the programs in our church, and we gather to pray every night. Well, at the end of that week, a couple of days after that, our pastor of women's ministries, she was perfectly fine on Friday afternoon. She was dead and home with the Lord on Tuesday morning. So did solemn assembly make things go better or was it preparing an entire church for an unexpected home going? Things go better with Coke mentality. Is That's not the point at all. What is the point? Another version of utilitarian worship is seeking guidance. I, I pray when I'm in trouble. No, there's nothing wrong in praying when you're in trouble. Prayer mostly starts when we're in trouble. That's how God has ordained it. And it's okay to ask God for guidance as well. He wants us to. But when we only talk to God and speak to him and worship him, when we need guidance for something, there's something wrong. <laughs> Imagine a marriage, you know. Imagine a husband and a wife getting together every morning and saying, uh, what do you want me to do today? You know, well, here's a list. I wonder what do you want me to do today? Here's another list. And off you go and do the things. What would a marriage look like if that was the sum total of your interaction? You just did each other's to-do lists. Oh, you got lots of guidance from each other for the day. But that's not what a marriage is all about. It's all about relationship. It's all about intimacy. It's about a heart-to-heart -heart connection. Now, in the context, there are many honey-do lists that get exchanged in the process, right? We've got to do a lot of things. But that isn't the point. The point of the marriage is the relationship. That's the whole point about our worship of God. Patient worship is for the building of a relationship, a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with God. And tomorrow night we'll talk about how God in his word reveals that heart to us. So we, we hear the revelation of God's heart. We pour out our hearts to him. 
Prayer for ourselves, prayer for the nations, prayer for our church, all of those things. Now, in the context of that intimacy, there's all kinds of need and room for guidance. Dallas Willard, in his book, Hearing God, put it so beautifully. He says this, Hearing God's word will never make sense except when it is set within the larger life of a certain kind. God does not exist to solve our problems. We exist to stand up with God and count for something in his work. Our concern for discerning God's voice must be overwhelmed by and lost in our worship and adoration of him and in our delight with his creation and his provision for our whole life. In the context of a whole life relationship with God, yeah, by all means we can ask him for guidance about jobs and where to go and what to do and who to marry and all those things. He is honored by a request for guidance. But it's a life far more than guidance. If it's all about only guidance, that's utilitarian worship. Now the third one, Baal worship, that took me a little bit longer to figure out. Uh, the, uh, what is that like? What does rationalistic worship look like nowadays? We don't, we're not told to sacrifice animals and stuff like that. There isn't much visible reality, so to speak. There are no altars and priests dressed in various clothing. There's no clergy lady distinctions. So all of that stuff that was, that what gave shape to Saul's rationalistic worship isn't obviously applicable to us. And it didn't become clear until I was reading another book by Peterson called Five Smooth Stones. And he has an observation there about Baal. Remember they worship Baal? Uh, the, the quote is a little bit long. Well, it's not too long, but, uh, but listen carefully because it is so crucial. And then I'll unpack it for how it applies to us. He desc he's describing Baal worship. The emphasis of Baal worship was subjective worship. The god of the bull image, the god of wine, the god of the fertility figurine was the god of relevance, fulfilling personal needs with convincing immediacy. The desires that inflamed the soul were fulfilled in the heart of act of worship. The transcendence of God was overcome in an ecstasy of feeling. Sensory participation was featured. Music and dance became the means for drawing persons out of their private differences and forcing them into a mass response. And this is the heart of the matter. It was worship that sought fulfillment through self-expression. Worship that accepted the needs and passions of the worshiper as its raw material. In a word, worship that was reduced to the stature of the worshiper. Its canons were that worship should be interesting, relevant, and exciting. Have you heard that before? That's the essence of Baal worship. If I can put it in a single sentence, it's worshiping worship, not worshiping God. That suddenly brings it home very close to us. I preach this sermon in six different cultures and every culture they say that's a huge problem. Worshiping worship, that's the essence of Baal. What it is, it's, it's, it doesn't mean there's no room for feelings. In fact, as John Piper has said, where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. The question is, what is the source of those feelings? The immediacy of my needs or who God is? That's the point. And so the opposite of Baal worship, worshiping worship, is a definition of worship that I got from William Temple that to me has been another little gyroscope within a gyroscope for me. Temple defined true worship as worship that 
is our, self, our response to the self-revelation of God. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, feed the mind with the truth of God, purge the imagination by the beauty of God, open the heart to the love of God, and devote the will to the service of God. Is that a beautiful definition? Let me give you an example of each one of them. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. There was a young man in our church many years ago who uh, I had discipled, and he was actually leading a prayer ministry in our church his marriage got into difficulties. He got involved with another woman. And uh, I kept up contact with him. And he left his wife. And he got married to this other woman. Throughout that process, I maintained contact with him, pleading with him not to do that. We did it anyway. Um, and then a few months later, we got together for lunch again. And he says to me, he said, I've been to hell and back. So what happened? He said, well, I started going back to church. He said, and it was at a communion service when the enormity of what I had done landed so heavily on my heart. He said, for a month, I thought I was going straight to hell. That's the quickening of the consciousness by the holiness of God. You see, when God convicts us of a sin, worship then isn't clap your hands, all ye people. No. Worship at that point may be speechless amazement, tears rolling down your eyes, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That's worship. Worship is your response to the holiness. So it's quickening the conscience by the holiness of God. It's also feeding the mind with the truth of God. I remember one time Sham and I were driving, and that afternoon I just finished, uh, N.T. Wright is one of my favorite theologians, and I've been learning a lot from him, and I had just finished reading uh, his analysis of the book of Matthew. I was just overwhelmed by the beauty. And later on, as I was telling Sham that the tears were flowing down my eyes. I would just, as I say, was just the mind was fed with the truth of God. Worship then simply became an astounding set of tears at the mind of God that is revealed in the scriptures. That's what the psalmist celebrates in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory. It's not really about heavens all day. No. He said, but just like the heavens declare the glory of God, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right and bring joy to the heart. The commandments are radiant and enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure and endures forever. The ordinances of the Lord are beautiful. And then, of course, Psalm 119 is an even longer celebration. That's the mind that is fed with the truth of God. That's worship. Psalm 119 is all worship to a mind that has been ecstatically seized by the beauty of revelation. Then thirdly, it is to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. And this one sandbagged me once. I was in India speaking to a group of teenage, uh, high school students, and in the course of one of the evenings, the kids were doing a little drama. And you know, as dramas go, it wasn't really a spectacularly produced drama with amazing backdrops or anything like that. But I was sandbagged by beauty in a way that I'd never been before. The, the, it was the, 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 the play, the, the, the script had to do with the thief on the cross that was forgiven by Jesus right before he died. And this thief is showing up in heaven. So the backdrop for that is there's a senior angel talking to another angel. And there's, I guess, a new angel recruit, a little flighty little gal, you know. Um, kind of, you know, making snide remarks here and there. And the, sort of like uh, Julie Andrews in Sound of Music and the senior angel was kind of calming her down and stuff like that. And anyway, then the senior angels go off stage, leaving this flighty little one by herself, and then this, this thief just shows up, 
dressed in his rags, and of course he's in heaven. Tonight you shall be with me in paradise. So he's just all over the place wondering what's going on, and of course this one didn't like him at all. This little angel saying, what are you doing here? Why, people like you shouldn't be in this place at all. And so she asked him a few questions, and he said, who sent you here? And he said, ah, I don't know, some guy called Jesus. As soon as he said the word Jesus, she just dropped to her knees and raised up and began worshiping Jesus. And I thought, that's what heaven's like. That's what the name of Jesus produces, that kind of response in heaven. That's what I meant when I said I was sandbagged by beauty. That's the, my imagination was purged in one moment by a simple, unprofessional, highly amateur drama. That was in the mind. It just got right here. That's what Jesus is like in heaven. That's how he's regarded in heaven. What should I be regarding him as? So it was both a combination of being quickened by the holiness of God at the same time. And then the fourth one, opening your heart to the love of God. I remember this was at a mission, con- mission field, actually. I was speaking in a mission field, and uh, I was speaking on the adoption, the doctrine of adoption, that you and I are children of a loving heavenly father. And right down the center of the aisle, only about 50 people there, right down the center of the aisle, was, he was the accountant in that field. He was, must have been about 60 years old. He was sitting on his chair, both hands up like this, rejoicing in the fact that he was a child of the living God. That's opening your heart to the love of God. And then finally, devoting the will to the service of God. You know, sometimes worship begins when you leave this place. <laughs> because during the sermon, God has told you, I need you to pick up the phone and call that friend of yours and apologize to him. So worship begins when you go out and pick up the phone. See what that worship is like? All kinds of feelings, a full gamut of feelings are involved. But they are not, your own feelings didn't start as a raw material. You don't force everybody to feel in a certain way. You don't, that's why he talks about Baal worship merges everybody into a common response while submerging individual responses. Whereas genuine worship, even in a corporate setting, should be characterized by multiple different kinds of emotions. One person's conscience is being quickened by the holiness of God. Somebody else is going wow at the truth of God. Someone else's beauty is being, imagination is being purged by the beauty of God. Someone else is just rejoicing in the love of God and somebody else is saying, oh no, I better do that tonight. That's genuine worship. You get some idea what Baal worship is and what rationalistic worship is? Now, as I draw this message to a close, <laughs> this story of Saul, tragic as it is, is intertwined together with another story, the story of David. While one man's going on a downward spiral, there's another man who's going on an upward spiral. Now, David wasn't the perfect man either. In fact, as we know, he committed adultery and murder. Now, I want you to just pause with me and ask yourself the question. You've got impatience on the one hand and adultery and murder on the other hand. That one's going to get you excommunicated. This one nobody even notices. So did God kind of go lose his bearings for a while or what? That that man is called a man after God's own heart and this man is a terrifying example of someone who ends up in suicide. You know what the difference was? All the sins were bad enough and David paid for it. His family never recovered and Israel never recovered from those sins. So they were massive sins. There was no question about that. But David's heart <laughs> was rock solid. I can't bear to be apart from God. So when Nathan the prophet came to him, 
I mean, he could have sentenced the prophet to death. That's what the rest, rest of the kings did. In the rest of the nations, the kings told the prophets what to say. In Israel alone, the prophets told the king what to say. It took one instant. Nathan said, thou art the man. And the man was prostrate for six days. That was the heart. The heart was rock solid. He was solid at the core, even though the surface was pockmarked. It's like a golf ball. You prick a golf ball, what happens? It's ugly, it's scarred all over the place. But the center is rock solid. Take a balloon, press it, boom. Nothing in the middle. That was Saul. Everything at the surface. That's the whole issue. Saul's epitaph. I have played the fool and I've erred greatly. You know what David's epitaph was? One thing I ask of the Lord. <laughs> that I may dwell in the Lord, house of the Lord, all the days of my life and gaze upon the fair beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. You see, ultimately, all of us are writing, the details will be different, but ultimately, all of us are writing one of those two epitaphs. I have, erred, I have played the fool and I have great, greatly erred. Impatient worship, utilitarian worship, rationalistic worship, self-worship, sustained by image maintenance, fear of man, instant gratification, and distorted wisdom. On the other hand, an imperfect man who says, one thing have I desired, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his fair beauty.